Hello and welcome to episode 42 of Just Keep Writing. A podcast for writers, by writers, to keep you writing. I'm Marshall. I'm Nick. And I'm Will. How are we doing, guys? Take two. Hey, hey, hey. <laughs> yeah, take it's funny. two is right. Sometimes I like to admit that we may or may not have done this already the day before if we have tech issues. It's just for fun. But anyway, yeah, we're recording this. It's episode 42. I'm stoked to see you guys again, second night in a row. Uh, top of the show. Let's talk housekeeping stuff, dude. We have some events coming up. Nick, go. Boom. We got Surrey and FireCon coming up. Um, both of those are going to be held in October. It's going to be great. Um, both are virtual. Well, you, I know you have a little bit more on FireCon um, information on that than I do. Um, can you tell us a little bit more about FireCon? What's that going to be about? Uh, they're they're having their first ever Ignite Awards. So they're um, they've nominated. Uh, for short story, for novels. There's a couple other uh, nominations. Um, I don't have the dates actually handy, but we can put them in the show notes and we'll mention it in the next show as well because uh, we will have some special guests for um, Viacon. Yeah, it's actually the weekend before Surrey. And let's not forget, Surrey is actually partnering up for with WXR as well. So there'll be events yep. for WXR alumni. Um, and so they'll be having their kind of... Um, big event during that time as well. So basically it's coinciding with the cruise, which would have been uh, a mixture of both uh, communities as well. So oh, I'm looking forward cruise. to it. It's going to be a crazy <laughs> couple of weeks. Yeah. I'm so sad. I know you're talking about the cruise. You said, <laughs> yeah, yeah, I'm sad too, but hopefully next year we'll be back to it. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Hopefully. Yeah. Um. Isn't now? Isn't Tor doing something in conjunction with Fiacon to help support that? They're doing a flash fiction, um, easing, and we'll talk about it in our next show. Cool. Well, perfect. More to come. More to come. Yeah. Stay Uh, tuned. Stay tuned. So the other thing we need to do, um, we want to announce every to everybody, we have gone back like we've been talking about the last few episodes and re. I don't know revisited our patreon page so if you were thinking about uh supporting the show definitely check it out we have changed the tiers we've changed the rewards um and we are going to give a big shout out to all our patreon patrons uh on this episode because we owed some people anyway and we have some new patrons so we've changed the tiers there's some awesome rewards and we've had some folks take us up on some of our higher tiers which is really really cool with daily writing prompts and stuff like that and we'll uh we talked last night you wanted to mention the um coinciding with uh nano uh nanorimo correct yes so the daily writing prompts uh when you re when you start at a certain level you get the daily writing prompts so it'll be emailed to you and for today's which is actually going to be on friday um it will be actually i'm going to i'm just going to give you an old one and anyone can play with this so you'll actually see what it's like um the plane is going to crash There are 50 seconds until impact, a long time. What do the passengers and pilots do with that much time? And then from there, you are going to write a little story. Um, And it's really just meant to be like as a warm-up exercise, or it could turn into a whole short story and novel. I don't know. The idea is that you'll get a prompt emailed every day. It'll be something different. Sometimes it'll build uh, upon the previous day and you can create. I used to do this in uh, my creative writing class. Every class we came in, we had a new writing prompt and it would spin out. I 
actually wrote some of my favorite stories um, through doing this. So I think it'll be fun for everyone. And it'll especially be nice for Nano. Because if you didn't want to write a uh, a novel, you could always do something like, I'm going to use this daily prompt as writing a flash fiction every day for 30 days. Or I'm going to, I'm not sure what I want to write for Nano. So let me use these prompts as a way that I can write at least three or four short stories within a month and make that a goal. Um, it's just really, you know, it's fun. That's awesome. I love it. And so that's at our $25 level um, on our Patreon. If I'm not mistaken, there's a daily writing prompts, I think. And um, so if you want to get in on that before Nano, it's a perfect time to do it. So, And that's uh, not all you get for the $25. Oh, no, of course not. Uh, there's more to it than just yeah. the, the daily writing prompt, guys. So we're not going to give it away. What we should do is direct people to our Patreon, which is a link in the show notes. And you can check it out and figure out uh, what level works for you and support the show any way you'd like. We'd love that. Shout out to Shout out. <laughs> All right. So big shout out to our longtime patrons and our new patrons and everybody who has been supporting the show. We really appreciate you. So, of course, uh, David Well, we've mentioned on the show before. Thank you for supporting the show. Uh, Gabe, Gabriel, excuse me. Uh, Marie. Mindy, Barbara Lund, and Constance, one of our newer patrons. So thank you all so, so very much for supporting the show. Um, and I hope that you, since you've already, some of you have been around for a while, so check it out and see if anything's changed in your tier and make sure we're fulfilling our promises, please. Keep us keep us in check. I also want to say that the daily writing prompts actually start at the $10 a month. Uh, they start there. So at $10, okay, you get the daily writing prompts delivered via email. It also includes a shout out on an episode of Just Keep Writing and early access to the next episode. So you'll usually get those episodes a day beforehand. Marshall's got some work. And I I got my work cut out for me. No problem. But like I said, that will all come through Patreon. And so the way Patreon works is I can basically assign things by tier. So if you have early access, if you're on that tier... It'll, it'll bounce to your inbox and be a push notification on your phone if you have the app and all that kind of stuff. So definitely check out our Patreon, guys. And if you'd like to support us, we love our community. Um, and any help uh, would help us keep this going a little easier. So thank you. Yeah, and don't forget, if you sign up for Patreon, you get an automatic invite to Discord as well um, to be part of our Discord community channel. True statement. So all right, an anything else, guys? I think that's great. Yeah. Right. Let's cool. get this party started. Well, uh, yeah, so Let's speaking of the party starting, <laughs> we've been alluding to what we were going to do on this episode, and I'm going to let these guys take it away in a second. But um, essentially, uh, our writing group, um, there's one member of our writing group that is not here, but we took a kind of a deep dive into um, Agatha Christie's, and then there were none. And this kind of came on the back of um, Nicholas. Nicholas, I'm looking at your name. Uh, I'm so this, official. <laughs> I don't want to be that official. Uh, this basically um, came on the heels of Will um, helping Nick with his work in progress. And they basically, he's trying to write a mystery. And we've talked about this on other shows before, but uh, this is this is the result. And so basically, I'm going to let you guys take it away and what you plan on doing. But this is a really good exercise and um, was a lot of fun talking about it in our writing group. And we had a little controversy, right? Oh yeah, yeah. There's a little debate. <laughs> and, I, and, I'll say, and I'll say up top too, there are some spoilers for, and then there were none. Um, so definitely if you haven't read the story, uh, keep that in mind. We don't want you to turn it off. 
We don't want you to turn the episode off necessarily, but keep in mind there will be spoilers. So if you want to read it, it's short. Go check it out and then pop on back. So another thing is that on the episode, what you can do is go to justkeepwriting.org and you can actually download two different sheets. One sheet is with the actual beat sheet of what uh, the three of us kind of came up with the um, structure for the story. And then there's a blank one. With the blank one, you can actually listen along and fill it in. Or what you could also do is read it first, fill it out, listen, see what we came up with, agree, disagree, talk about it in Discord, or um, shout out to us on Instagram or Twitter. Okay, let's go into this. Nick, I'll point to you when you're going to come in, okay? Just like the producer yeah. that I am. Yes, yeah, sir. I'm just glad I don't have a lot to do this episode. I'm going to chime in because I like to talk, but I, I, I'm excited to see how this goes, boys. You're not getting out of the letter. Yeah, you're still... I'll point to you too, Marshall. Don't you worry. Oh, don't get so, me started on that damn letter. Don't get me started. All right, let's go. So <laughs> first, a little bit about... I get the Christie's and then there were none. The book is considered one of PBS's top 100 books of all time. Uh, the reason that we actually chose this book was because when I was going over Nick's story, uh, he wanted to get the mystery elements really tight. So who else would show us how to get a mystery really tight but the queen of mystery herself? And when you talk to genre writers or even just even people who are more literary, Looking back at the way that Agatha crafted and then there was none was a lot of work and it was genius. She really gave something that, even though it was written about 1939-1940, is still now looked upon as really tense plotting, uh, really a lot of twists and turns. And it was just a good way that if we could re-engineer how she went about it after reading it, and we did it through the three-act structure from the book, Save the Cat Writes a Novel. And it's in the Why Done It section. So the Why Done It section is a really great section that shows you how mysteries tend to be plotted out. And now for anyone who's a panster or discovery writer, don't get afraid of the structure. Because I think most of us, I don't think any of us are really heavy outliners. But what we wanted to do was kind of just, even if it was just kind of like certain steps that we need, knew we needed to do and intuitively let the story take over. I know from reading um, the book and working on this project with Nick, I've actually gone out and really kind of created more of a detailed outline of my current work in progress. And it has made it a lot stronger and at least given me things to write towards. And even if it changes in the middle, you know, again, this isn't like a law. This is just a tool that you can use. And again, every book might be different of how you want to write it. Nick, what was your experience going over this before we start? Yeah, no, it was a really good experience for me um, because there's a lot of reorganization and shuffling that I need to do um, by going through this template and seeing how it's properly done. Um, and then just better identifying where I am weaker or what I missed um, based off of this. Um, so really just opened my eyes, especially when it comes to the mystery part. That was the most beneficial, seeing how the mysteries plotted out, but still leaving enough breadcrumbs around to know, you know, hey, someone can figure it out if they're really paying close attention to these certain points. Right. So I'm going to give everyone just a little brief um, 
kind of synopsis. Not, I'm not telling you the whole story. It's kind of think of it as the back of the jacket cover, okay? Um, ten. Ten strangers are lured to an isolated island mansion off the Devon coast by a mysterious U.N. Owen. Nine. At dinner, a recorded message accuses each of them in turn of having a guilty secret, and by the end of the night, one of the guests is dead. Eight. Stranded by a violent storm and haunted by a nursery rhyme counting down one by one, as one by one they begin to die. Seven, which among them is the killer and will any of them survive? So instantly, just from that little bit, you are instantly pulled in. And it's going to open us to act one, opening image. And the act one opening image is usually the before snapshot of the hero. And it doesn't have to be a flashback. So the snapback, the snapshot before is the mystery that is surrounding the new owners of Soldier Island and the reasons that brought each character to the start of their journey. And when we looked at this, we really said it was, you know, chapter one, sections one through four. And I'm just going to read a part of the first two paragraphs, so you can kind of see of how Agatha is really kind of building the mystery from day one and really setting the uh, the tone of the story with the opening image. In the corner of a first-class smoking carriage, Mr. Justice Wargrave, lately retired from the bench, puffed at a cigar and ran an interested eye through the political news in the Times. He laid the paper down and glanced out the window. They were now, they were running now through Somerset. He glanced at his watch, another two hours to go. He went over in his mind all that had appeared in the papers about Soldier Island. There had been its original purchase by an American millionaire who was crazy about yachting, and an account of the luxurious modern house he had built on this little island off the Devon coast. The unfortunate fact was the new third wife of the American millionaire was a bad sailor had led to the subsequent putting up of the house and island for sale. Various glowing advertisements of it had appeared in the papers. Then came the first bold statement that it had been bought by a Mr. Owen. After that, the rumors of the gossip writers had started. Soldier Island had really been bought by Miss Gabrielle Turrell, the Hollywood film star. She wanted to spend some months there free from all publicity. Busy Bee had hinted delicately that it was to be an abode for royalty. I'm going to stop right there because we could actually go on a couple more pages. But just through that tense action of like reading of what Soldier Island's about, um, who's actually purchased it? There is automatically from the opening scene a mystery being formed. Well, and one of the things I think uh, Christy does pretty well with that opening scene too is the fact that every single character that comes in after that has some impression already on what Soldier Island is and what's and what the mist what the not the mystery but what the rumors are around it and who owned it before so it's 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 in everybody's consciousness so the fact that they're all there they kind of know what they're getting into with something else uh that's changed which I think is she does a really good job I think that's a really good 
observation. Yeah, she does do that really good. So just for everyone who's listening, I I didn't plan on this, but I'm going to read another part. This is the uh, section two. It opens up with Vera Claythorne in a third class carriage with five other travelers in it, leaned her head back and shut her eyes. How hot it was traveling by main train today. It would be nice to get to the sea. Really a great piece of luck getting this job. When you wanted a holiday, post-it nearly always meant looking after a swarm of children. Secretarial holiday posts were much more difficult to get. Even the agency hadn't held out much hope. And then the letter had come. And this opens up about each of them had gotten a letter. So I Mm -hmm. think that's a really good, that's a good point, Marshall, because it's like, then we go to the next character and it starts creating another opening scene, but it reinforces the first scene and it really builds upon the mystery and it moves pretty quickly from there. Yeah. And, the, yeah, and, some, and, and with some of the characters, it's, you know, it's more like, oh, I've been, I've heard of that place before, but then some it's a little more ingrained and it's a little more, there's a little more going on there too, which is good. Yeah. And it was interesting how she started us having like in each of their point of views throughout the book. It was very well done. It was very, I mean, just thinking about it, it would have to be very hard to write. The next part in act one is the theme stated. The statement made by a character that hints at what the hero's arc will be. This is what the hero must learn or discover at the end of the book. It's also referred to as the life lesson. Nick, do you want to talk about the life lesson? Do you remember what you... um, (laughs) Yeah, I'm looking at my document right now. I have my notes. Good. So the life lesson was one of those... Well, I think in our group, you're the one that pointed pointed this out the most. Um, It was kind of harder for me to see in the beginning, but now I I totally see it. There's a man in Chapter 1, Section 4, and he's like the cuckoo cuckoo crazy guy. And, And I believe it's with Lombard, isn't it? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And he says, just watch and pray. Just watch and pray. Judgment is at hand, which Lombard totally discards and is like, you're way closer to death than I am. So exactly. And, that, and usually in these, which stories, is foreshadowing in and of itself. <laughs> yeah. Which is just really great how she does it. And that's in chapter one, section four. Spoiler um, Lombard was- dies. <laughs> <laughs> Well, we can go over that as we get on, because um, we're going to spoil the whole novel, basically, everyone. Um, right. Go ahead. Now we have the setup, which the setup is the exploration of the hero status quo life and all its flaws. It's where we learn what the hero's life looks like before its epic transformation. We also need to introduce supporting characters and the hero's primary goal, show the hero's reluctance to change show stakes at risk if the hero does not change. So the status quo right here is as a group, they're, the status quo is they that actually reach the mission, you know? And it's where we want to go to chapter three, section one. You know, it opens up with this scene, and I'm just going to read a little section. Dinner was drawing to a close. The food had been good, the wine perfect. Rogers waited well. Everyone was in better spirits. They had begun to talk to each other with more freedom and intimacy. So here we start to see that, you know, the the cast is getting comfortable with each other. Their guards are starting to be a little bit down, even though they find it a little peculiar about each other, because they're all seem so 
random and unconnected. Yeah, and even even uh, what uh, what's her name? Um, Vera was it? Um, yeah, even her. It's like you know she gets a letter that says, but she's never. They I think throughout the course of the conversation, if I remember correctly, they all of them figure out that none of them have actually know who owns this place or, or have met that person. And especially Vera, who's actually employed by them. And even the, um, Roger, you know, the yeah. butler and the, you know, the kitchen, the staff yeah. is having this like, well, we don't really know them either. Obviously, you know, we're all just kind of new here. So it's, it's, it sets up a really tense, uh, mysterious tone for sure. So from there, you know, and so that brings us to what the hero's goal is. The hero's goal is to find out who their mysterious host is, you know, who's actually hosting them. Because after they start to open up and they have dinner, you know, it's still kind of like, okay, this is so strange. The next part is the catalyst within the first 10% of the book. It's inciting an incident or life-changing event that happens to the hero that will catapult them into a new world and into a new way of thinking. The action beat that is big enough that does not let the hero return back to a status quo world. And this enters, I think, one of the creepiest part of the stories, which is the gramophone. Especially if you listen to it on Audible. (laughs) Oh my God. I want to listen to it now. So I actually purchased the two episode series that BBC did on it, and it's oh, really? just just as creepy in those episodes. Is it? Because Debbie, mm-hmm. shout out to Debbie, um, was the one who was <laughs> like, "You guys have to watch it because it's really yeah. done well." Um, we love you, Debbie. So, Hi, Debbie. The, the gramophone, and it's going to start. I'm going to read a section of that, and then Nick, you can take it over from debate. Okay. Um, from where? The debate. I'll point to you. When I do this. Yeah, point to me. Okay. Okay. Um, I, I'm sorry. I'm taking over reading. I like doing I like reading. What's funny um, about you pointing to him, though, is that none of us are, we're all in different parts of the country. And well, so just, you pointing to him is like hilarious because if he's not looking, he's not going to see it. Yeah, that's true. <laughs> anyway, go ahead. So, ladies and gentlemen, silence, please. Everyone was startled. They looked around at each other at the walls. Who was speaking? The voice went on, a high, clear voice. You are charged with the following indictments. Edward George Armstrong, that you did upon the 14th day of March, 1925, caused the death of Louisa Mary Cleese. Emily Caroline Brent, that upon the 5th of November, 1931, you were responsible for the death of Beatrice Taylor. William Henry Bloor, that you brought about the death of James Stephen Landor on October 10th, 1928. Vera Elizabeth Claiborne, Claythorne, that on the 11th day of August, 1935, you killed Cyril Ogilvie Hamilton. Philip Lombard, that upon a date in February 1932, you were guilty of the death of 21 men, members of an East African tribe. John Gordon MacArthur, that on the 4th of July, 1917, you deliberately sent your wife's lover, Arthur Richmond, to his death. Anthony James Martston, that upon the 14th day of November last, you were guilty of the murder of John and Lucy Combs. Thomas Rogers and Ethel Rogers, that on the 6th of May, 1929, you brought about the death of Jennifer Brady. Lawrence John Wargrave, that upon the 10th day of June, 1930, 
you were guilty of the murder of Edward Seton. Prisoners at the bar, have you anything to say in your defense? So, And then, go ahead, Marshall. What, what, what kills me about this is even just listening to you read it and listening to it in the book, too, if you, even if, so I, I'm basically talking to listeners right now who maybe haven't read this. If you aren't intrigued enough to go and check this out, this particular moment when this is over, if you put yourself in the shoes of these people in this room, could you imagine like hearing this out of the wall and knowing everybody mentioned is sitting around you, all accused of murder, what the hell do you do next? That scene is so well-crafted and so well done. It's so, it just, it makes you have to keep reading and find out how the hell they're going to deal with it. It's really cool. I just had to say that. Nick, well, how did you feel after you read that part? Um, man, it's one of those you you have to one take into consideration. I think the time period that she wrote this in obviously has also been updated to take out anything that was discriminatory and offensive. Um, that used to fit the times, right? And when you read off some of these, um, charges. Um, the, the two that stand out to me the most are the general setting off his wife's lover to go be dead to, to his death. And then Lombard, who killed 21 men um, that were all members of an East African tribe. Those two stuck out to me the most. And I feel like they were talked about the most um, amongst the group as the most shameful things that there was that uh, you sent a man to his death. Like on purpose, like you gave him an order that you knew was going to kill him or you killed 21 defenseless members of a East African tribe. You're so despicable. And then they're the ones I feel like they kind of glossed over a little bit. Like, well, who's that? Like, oh, she was just an old lady that died in her sleep. Like, well, those I feel like we're cover up, like easier to cover up and talk to. I think in the group it was easier to cover up, but I felt like yeah. what you did really good was internalize specifically of Vera right. guilt. I do feel like Emily um, Bren, I think she was just um, bitch. That bitch was evil. Okay. <laughs> Let's just call it as it is. Okay. I'm sorry. She was, she was <laughs> church lady evil. Okay. It reminds me of an. And described just, beautifully too. Just oh how, she sat, how she held oh, yeah. herself. It was amazing. I mean, if if um, if he who must not be named was inspired by uh, Dolores Umbridge of that character, then I can totally see it. Because when I tell you Emily <laughs> Brent is this version's Dolores Umbridge, it is full on. I mean, Dolores <laughs> Umbridge and like uh, Sarah Sanders, the former uh, White House press um, thing, they always remind me of Dolores Umbridge. But anyway, <laughs> Aww, um, that's funny. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> sorry we can disagree politically everyone okay um uh, just, oh, and we do oh we do it's just sarah sanders i never thought of it and now it makes me sad yeah well mm-hmm. you'll, now you'll it's be okay. a correlation yeah. for dictators anyway um <laughs> it brings us back to the debate so nick why don't you read the debate yeah so debate that's this is the reaction sequence in which the hero debates on what they will do next Presented in the form of a question, the purpose is to show the hero's reluctance to change. Uh, this is a super important piece because it comes right after the gramophone. And so my internet hates me. Sorry, I'm okay. scrolling down. Um, oh, you got it. Yeah. So this is where I 
I feel this portion not right. I believe it takes right after the gramophone incident where each character is pointing the finger saying, oh, you're gross. You're ugly. You're disgusting. I can't believe you would do that. Um, and things like that. And they're, you know, they're really trying to find out who actually did what. And this is covered in chapter three, section two. Um, so I'm going to I'm going to read a section from it because I have my book handy. So this is after uh, the part where we read about all of their um, guilty charges. The voice had stopped. There was a moment's petrified silence and then a resounding crash. Rogers had dropped the coffee tray. At the same moment, from somewhere outside the room, there came a scream and the sound of a thud. Lombard was the first to move. He leapt to the door and flung it open. Outside, lying in a huddled mass, was Mrs. Rogers. So just from there, it is like they're stunned. Something happens. And then it instantly um, moves to um, all of them debating they're ready to recharge they're ready to replay the gramophone um in section two and finally vera cried turn it off turn it off it's horrible a disgraceful and heartless practical joke i suppose and that was from dr armstrong so you think it's a joke do you the doctor stared at them what else could it be so what this really like, I think after reading this, I really went through a lot of my work, specifically my short story I'm handing into Uncanny Magazine on September 8th of what questions do my characters need to have or ignore? What emotions do they need to ignore to build tension? Because that is what that scene right after the gramophone does. It builds tension. Agree? Disagree? Well, of course, because and then what and and you read the part. I mean, some of them are going to think it's a joke. Some are not going to take it seriously. Others, That's especially after, especially after, right. Especially after hearing the laundry list of, of um, charges too, they're going to start the attention also builds because some people like Nick was saying a minute ago, some people are going to think other people's crimes are more egregious than others as well. So then you get the finger pointing, you get the disbelief, and then you get the, now what the hell do we do? And the tension even further builds, which I'm not going to spoil yet, but the, the <laughs> tension uh, um, heightens even more when other things start to go wrong and people start dying. So it gets, it, you know, you can't disbelieve anymore. But at the same time, I love that moment where, oh, no, it's just a joke. It's got to be a joke. They're just messing with us. But that's trying to underscore the tension that everybody's already feeling, you know? Mm-hmm. Exactly. So, which goes into our next part. Number six, this is uh, part of the act two, break into two. This is 20% through the book. Um, this is the moment the hero decides to accept the call to action and leave the comfort zone. Try something new or venture into a new world or new way of thinking. This moment, this moment that separates status quo from act one. Um, so this is a little bit further past the gramophone. Um, this is chapter four, section two. And this is where their plan starts taking action. They start questioning each other um, on how they know the host and start putting in some type of safety measures too. Um, And then I just want to point out as well, because it's sitting on my screen, the name for their host is U.N. Owen. Can anyone else see the word unknown (laughs) in that that little thing as well? Well done. Yep. It's been... 
Yeah, I've, I don't think I've talked to you guys about it, but I feel like you and Onan is almost like an anagram for unknown. Oh, um, I, I can I buy that for sure. And then also, if I'm not mistaken, this is the part too where people start taking on certain roles, and you really start to see people um, mm-hmm. like uh, Wargrave starts to kind of take the lead in the conversations and stuff as well. And, um, and yes. Dr. Armstrong is kind of like his mm-hmm. right-hand man in a way, being like, oh, well, you know, right. this is just crazy. This isn't like, you know, like it's bad on them. They feel guilty for something. Um, Dr. Armstrong um, says, you know, about how his license was revoked over an accident, that it really wasn't a big deal. It wasn't something he could control. So you start to question then, well, then is someone really guilty is someone not? Because I feel like with certain some of the characters, and I feel like Vera in a lot of ways, mm-hmm. um, I kept questioning, like, is she guilty of something or was it an accident? And also, but I always thought Emily Brand, I always knew that. <laughs> that <laughs> you're not that a fan, I know. Was like, I was like, no, you're going to hell, girl. Well, uh, what's also really interesting, though, too, is now that everybody starts to kind of take their roles up, it brings all the things that she hints on when we first see those little vignettes in the beginning, everybody mm-hmm. settles into those roles and starts, and all of that starts to heighten a little bit. You get to see, you know, your favorite person get a little bitchier and you get to see, you know, the doctor try to explain himself and all that kind of stuff. So I think, um, this is that the tension is building and everybody's falling into place basically. Yeah. And, and kind of, as we're looking at the sheet and I'm looking at it as well, almost at the same time, the B story is developing, Right. Um, this is, you know, at about 22% of the book. Um, and what we have officially is introduction of new characters to help the character learn the theme. Also referred to as a helper character, love interest, mentor, nemesis, family member, friend, etc. Uh, but really in this book is it's it's the eternal di- internal dialogue. Um, it is their internal thoughts that they're having with each other that's being introduced now. Um which is incredible. Like they're going over their past. Like this is where like with Vera, like, like you were saying, well, I don't know. I didn't know until so far down the road, if I believed what she was saying, or if I was believing the backstory coming out, um, because she, she really struggled with guilt on that. Also, I think this is really something interesting. So I think what happened with the B story too, is when they started looking at each of the characters. So the one that I found the most interesting was in chapter four, section four, and I'm going to just read a little bit of this. There was a silence in the room. Everybody was looking covertly or openly at Emily Brent. It was a minute or two before she became aware of the expectation. Her eyebrows rose on her narrow forehead. She said, Are you waiting for me to say something? I have nothing to say. The judge said, Nothing, Miss Brent? Nothing. Her lips closed tightly. The judge stroked his face. He said mildly, You reserve your defense? Miss Brent said coldly, There is no question of defense. I have always acted in accordance with the dictates of my conscience. I have nothing with which to reproach myself. There was an unsatisfied feeling in the air. But Emily Brent was not one to be swayed by public opinion. She sat unyielding. Here, I feel like is we are seeing certain characters in this scene become friends with each other because they're finding a common enemy. And who is going to be that common enemy right away? The person who feels like they've done 
nothing wrong. And that also ramps up the tension because then I feel like as the reader, you could think, well, what could she have done? You know, I mean, I just thought she was like, you know, like an asshole. Sorry, everyone. Um, But I was like, what could she have done? You know, she's like an older spinster. So that leads us to fun and games. I love this part. (laughs) Go ahead, Nick. Nick's not Nick's uh, Nick. Are you muted or what? I apologize. Yes. My <laughs> mic was muted for their sec. Funny <laughs> games. This is the fun part. It gets really exciting and you start seeing the poem that is read in the very beginning um, come into place. So this is about 20 to 50% of the entire book, right? You see the hero in their new world, either loving it or hating it, succeeding or floundering. Uh, promise of the promise. This represents the hook of the story. Um, and this is almost a callback to the theme of the book, you know, judgment is at hand. hand. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and then also the title, really, because you start yeah. to see victims one through three are gone. Mm-hmm. Mrs. Rogers, MacArthur, the one actor or, or who's the drunk dies. But I also want everyone to realize that in this book, you know, that poem, which we didn't read to you, but I think just for, I'll read like a little bit of it, but it's like 10 little soldier boys went out to dine, one choked his little self, and then there were nine, nine little soldier boys sat up very late, one overslept himself, and then there were eight, eight little soldier boys traveling in Devon, one said he'd stay there, and then there were seven. So here, each time a victim is dead, there were 10 little soldiers placed out in the dining area, and each time they were gone. And then they start to look at the toy soldiers and start comparing them to the poem and how people are dying, which leads us to, Nick, our midpoint. But what's also crazy about the the soldiers thing, too, is as a reader, you have to actually start to think, too, because if, let's say, one of these people is doing it, when are they doing it? How are the soldiers being taken? And why is nobody noticing? And so these are the questions in the reader's mind, too, that she's messing around with, too. So we're investing in these Mm -hmm. characters, but then we also have to try to figure out, okay, sure, it lines up with the poem, but who's instigating all of this? You know, so that's the best part about this mystery is you have to keep asking yourself that question. Well, it has to be so and so. Oh, wait, they're dead. Okay. So, you know what I mean? So, anyway, continue. And it, well, and the beautiful part about what you're saying too is, you know, we're not talking about it now, but it describes how each and every person dies and how it's related back to the poem, exactly. um, which I think is super important because there are some metaphorical ones in there as well. Um, so, yeah, midpoint number nine. This is halfway through the novel where the fun and games comes into a false victory or false defeat. Something here needs to raise the stakes and push the hero to real change. Um, Before we get to that, I just feel like this is what she does so well in her crisp. She's not what I love about Agatha Christie, specifically this book is she is never verbose about things. Mm -hmm. She, uh, explains things and paints a picture clearly and short. And really at the time, if you think of novels being written at that time, it wasn't always that way. There was a lot more of a, a flowery type of prose during that time. Mm -hmm. 
um, in literature. And I think what Agatha does so quickly is she describes things. So it paints a picture, but she almost pulls back a little bit more to do two things. Let the reader imagination fill out the rest, but also it creates this quick, sharp tension through the whole thing. And I find that fascinating. Yep. Love it. So, oh, go ahead, um, Nick, you can finish. Yeah. So the funny games, it's the internal dialogue and interviews um, throughout the main plot here. Of course, characters interacting. We have more information on the characters um, and you start to realize, I mean, Lombard full on admits it as well. You know, some of them are guilty, but they were never convicted. So you start to see that their actions, what they're being accused of, were not pros. Uh, you wouldn't be able to prosecute someone on those. Um, so it was outside the jurisdiction of the law um, for the time, right? Um, and this is also where we see the A and B stories. A and B stories are coming together. And so really, I would say like the A story is the main mystery of who's killing them. The B stories are all these little individual stories that are feeding into those stories. And what is great about this is as you start to get into the frame of of pictures of each of them, they all have this. Well, no, that's not how it happened. When they, mm-hmm. when they think about themselves, they're still seeing themselves very much as a victim of the circumstances of the island and that someone is crazy here. Right. It's less to do with what they did in the past and more about the situation they're put in. Now, let me, let me ask you guys this because it, it isn't on our sheet right now. Um, but for the A, A plot here, right? We start getting kind of a more of a sense of who UN Owen is without any spoilers or anything, anything like that. What do you surmise of Mr. Owen's personality? What do you know of him so far in this book about everyone he's accused of crime of was is guilty, but can't be punished within the restrictions of the law. Oh, he's a, he's an old school vigilante Batman style, but Batman, right. I mean, you know, they, they, they're they not going to get held up in court. They're not going to do jail time. But Batman is going to, uh, you know, bring the hammer down, so to speak. Right. Right. Yeah. I actually I really loved what Agus, Agatha Christie did here, though, um, is just put those little nudges in there. The vigilante aspect of it. Yeah. Someone who is going to take the law into their own hands, um, which then if you think, you know, you're trying to plot pointing at one of the characters that's still left alive, it makes it even harder. Exactly. Because none of them were known for any of that. So number 10, the bad guys close in 50 to 70% of the novel. The midpoint was a false victory downward path. That is progressively worse for the hero. If false defeat upward path where things seem progressively better for the hero, regardless of the past, Deep-rooted flaws and internal conflict are closing in. What would this look like? So, there was the gun missing. This might be my favorite part of the novel. When the gun goes missing, I'm like, oh, hell no. Yeah. (laughs) Um, I was so confused. Totally. The shower curtain was missing. Wargrave dies. Gun is back in original place. Leads to just the last four. 
Mm-hmm. This is at the point when I'm like, okay, is everyone dead? Like, <laughs> I, would, I just, I just want to know, like, they, so in the story, everyone, they kept putting each of the bodies back in their original rooms. And like, I'm sorry, but like, maybe this is like my mother's supernatural influence <laughs> affecting me, but I'd be like, okay, those bitches are raising up from the dead. I am going to go check on them. Are they really dead? Because it's just bad point, horror movie. It's like, of course, like you, you know, you don't check and you, you know, the killer you think is knocked out and you put him somewhere for safekeeping. And then all of a sudden he's. You know, cutting your head off. Yeah, right? yeah. It's just, it's just no way. Um, <laughs> God, and then, I love this part. <laughs> yeah, because this is when the tension really, really gets super tight. Um, yeah. Then number eleven is this is where all is lost. The lowest point of the novel, the action beat where something happens to the hero, combined with internal flaws that pushes the hero to rock bottom. What does this look like? And we go to chapter thirteen. And this is where they lock themselves into their rooms after Justice Wargrave is placed back into the bed and covered. So I want to read just a real quick part of chapter 13 so you get the sense of where everyone's at. And when they lock themselves in their room, like... I thought no, that was dumb too. And, and it's hella dumb. I thought, it was, but I thought it's, it was perfect. But it's also classic, you know, tension builder. It's like everybody is where they're supposed to be, so it couldn't be one of them, right? But then what's mm-hmm. going to get someone out of the room, right? And that's what I love about this scene. Well, another thing too is when you just think about how dumb people are, people <laughs> will start because they are. Okay, let's well, be yeah. honest. Look, look there at might what's be a happening right now. Everybody goes to the ocean to look. <laughs> Honestly, look, let's look at what is happening now in our country. There's certain things that you're like, okay, that is just so obvious. Like, why are you turning against someone? Right. Right. So this is would just be classic human nature that they all feel like they have to look out for themselves. Right. But you know what? Let's be real. This is why they're all in that fucking situation in the first place. (laughs) Pretty Um, selfish. You know? Um, So this is how chapter 13, section one opens up. One of us. One of us, one of us, three words, endlessly repeated, dining themselves hour after hour into receptive brains. Five people, five frightened people, five people who watched each other, who is now hardly troubled to hide their state of nervous tension. There was little pretense now, no formal veneer of conversation. There were five enemies linked together by a multiple instinct of self-preservation. And that says it right there, everyone. I love it. So which then that leads us to number 11. This is the part where all is lost. The lowest point of the novel, the action beat where something happens to the hero combined with internal flaws that pushes the hero to rock bottom. What does this look like? Nick, what does that look like? A. <sighs> man so sorry I, I got caught thinking to myself of like justice wargrave how he died and all this other stuff my apologies there um <laughs> so this is chapter 13 where they lock themselves into everything right um justice wargrave is placed back into his bed cover rock bottom then you start i believe it's lombard starts hearing things right someone's moving upstairs and this is classic thriller horror whatever you want to do it's like as soon as everything is quiet 
someone hears something, but then do they sit there and ignore it? No, <laughs> they have to go investigate, right? So then it all gets crazy. Which again, because of the way she builds the tension, also seems logical for some of the characters because some of those characters are straight up control freaks. Right. So it leads us to Dark Knight of the Soul, which is 75 to 80% of the novel. Reactions where the hero takes time to process everything that has happened and the hero should be worse off than beginning. Darkest hour. Moment night, moment right before the hero figures out the biggest moment in the novel and learns the theme of the novel. This is where it's down to three of them. Armstrong is dead, which is on uh, chapter 16, section one. Glorious. And now this is when they discover Armstrong, right? Because uh, Mm -hmm. what's his name went after Dr. Armstrong thinking he was the one moving around and then they're all at the beach, right? And then they find his body, correct? Yep. Yep. So here it goes. I'm going to read section one. Aeons passed. World spun and whirled. Time was motionless. It stood still. It passed through a thousand ages. No, it was only a minute or so. Two people were standing looking down on a dead man. Slowly, very slowly, Vera Claythorne and Philip Lombard lifted their heads and looked into each other's eyes. Bam. Then it goes into section two. Then we have... Then we have... um, And we're basically in Act 3 at this point. Right. Yeah. We're right, uh, yeah. we're right up at yeah, the end three. here. And then we- act three is right is coming up right now. Yeah. So this is act three that we're going to talk about now. Um, and this is called break into three, 80% of the mob novel, an aha moment hero realizes what they must do to not only fix all the problems in act two, but also fix themselves. The arc is nearly complete. This is where Vera accepts what she did and takes her own life. Do you not read the quote? The, parentheses yeah don't don't yeah i was gonna say don't do that yet but so it's interesting because okay so they're who is it that runs goes back to the house and leaves the two of them right doesn't that happen they're all three at the beach and then they're trying to figure out what they should do and then one of them the guy with the gun leaves correct lombard yeah he goes back to the house and leaves vera um with the other guy yeah but then who falls out of the window they both go, Vera and Lombard go together, that's right? They right. come that's back, right. they find that's the right. dead body. Mm-hmm. They then come back and they see the windows pushed open. And then they're like, oh my God, they run up, they hear something. That's and then right. they look down from the window and they're like, oh my God, he's dead. Yeah. And that's then they're right. like, okay. dun, 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 dun. and then Vera just like kind of loses it. Well, and I mean, and essentially she thinks she's the very last one, correct? Yeah. She is the last one. Well, she, well, yeah, she is the last one. So she's the last one. And she takes her life, and and this goes along with the poem as well, right? Mm-hmm. And it all neatly wraps up, sort of. And then we get to the part that I hate, but continue. So <laughs> here is the finale. This is 80 to 99% of the novel. Hero proves they have truly learned the theme and enacts a plan they've learned to in break into three. Bad guys destroyed, lovers reunited, flaws are conquered. Not only is the hero saved, it is a better place than it was before. But now, in in this book, uh, yeah, the heroes all realize uh, what was happened because they're all dead, okay? Because they all deserve death. Um, 
And then there comes a scene where the cops are talking over clues and scenes, and it reviews everything with a different set of eyes because they really don't know what's going on. And that scene with the cop, you're like, well, that's actually not um, what happens. They do a lot of good deduction, Mm -hmm. you know, in that scene, but it's not really like what actually happened. And this leads us to the conference the the biggest conflict between the four of us yeah because we're like no i want to go back to the cops super quick before we get into the controversy Mm -hmm. the cops i think that you're i think what you said there is really important i think i have agatha christie does a good job on this she she makes she makes the cops competent she makes them basically come to a conclusion the only conclusion they could based off of what facts they had right and I think this is why I have a hard time with the with the last part. But anyway, I, I do like the cops. I think they do a good job. But then we get to the final. So go ahead. Yep. And the final image is 99 to 100% of the book. Mirror, mirror's opening image. Snapshot of who is the hero is after going through his epic and satisfying transformation. The letter that is read by Wargrave. So it was Wargrave the whole time who was um, setting up all these (laughs) murders. And I'm just going to read you a paragraph because this will just get you into the mind of Wargrave. And it, and it completely interconnects with the beginning because he was kind of like, um, I'll say this word later from my earliest youth. I realized that my nature was a mass of contradictions. I have to begin with an incurably romantic imagination The practice of throwing a bottle into the sea with an important document inside was the one that never failed to thrill me when reading adventure stories as a child. It thrills me still. And for that reason, I've adopted this course, writing my confession, enclosing it in a bottle, sealing the latter, and casting it into the waves. Um, There is, I suppose, a hundred to one chance that my confession may be found. And then... Or do I flatter myself? A hetero unsolved mystery will be explained. This now the boys, um, the boys, the men, um, the boys, Marshall and Nick. I'll take boy. And then our friend Brian. Hey. Um, I'm 41 years old. I'll take boy anytime. It's fine. Okay. <laughs> they were really like, I hated it. I didn't like. I didn't like the letter. It like it could have just been left as is. Um, and we can talk about that. But I personally thought the letter was a nice wrap up. And also that Wargrave was basically a serial killer. And, and, and I a hundred percent agree with that. I honestly, like the, the thing I think that bothered me is I don't read a lot of mystery. And I think I got hung up on the fact that, you know, and I have, you know, I saw the, the modern, um, uh, was it murder in the Orient express, the redo or the reimagining, whatever they did a couple years ago. Um, and, and at the end, you know, you get, you know, the, the detective solving the thing and, you know, pointing at the, the con- convicts, or so, you know, the convicted, um, the guilty party or whatever. And I just felt like that was kind of how mysteries went. And then I read this and I'm like, okay, so without this letter, nobody would have known, including the reader, what would have happened. So I just felt like it was just kind of like, well, I have to explain it somehow because she did a really good job of not explaining and keeping it really good and mysterious. But then I get this letter at the end and I just felt like I was just kind of like, 
I don't know. It, it wasn't as satisfying for me, but that's probably my, um, you know, inexperience with uh, mysteries or whatever. But the reason I really liked it is because every single one of them was an unreliable narrator. Oh yeah. But Which they I like. were all really interesting. Yeah. You know, and this is what I, another thing is, I don't think we really liked any of them. Maybe Vera would be the mm-hmm. one I'd closest to like, but we didn't really like any of them, but she built the tension of so much of the who did this and why are they doing this mm-hmm. that that moved the plot. So I felt like looking at it from a character perspective, right? Like of writing, it made me look at what I'm writing right now, which is like um, a space opera heist. But it also made me see that, you know, you can have some very unlikable characters if you can raise the tension properly. And, and I think, I think I, I agree with you. And I might be coming around just a little bit because if you watch a, you know, a mystery TV show or movie or something, at some point you're going to, as the, viewer right you're gonna see the events play out unbeknownst to the characters right and i feel like that's exactly what this letter does is it basically says hey if you didn't figure it out here's how it all went down you know what i mean and so on that level i think i'm kind of okay with it i just felt like i wanted to find it out through the course of one of the characters but considering they're all dead you know not much to be done about that so i think that's the only way she could have done if she is gonna stay true to the poem where, and then there were none, <laughs> she'd have to do something like this in order to pull it off. So I, I, I don't know. I I've come around. I think a I, I like the open ended mystery without the letter. I felt like that was a better ending. My initial feeling okay. as well. Me. I don't agree with that at all because I'm thinking of your story, Nick, of why we actually started like going over this. I uh-huh. think it would be really interesting. Um, if the one who's possessed, does Can't. something creepy with a letter without <laughs> wait, I mean, letter. At the end. do i want to spoil this for you no i'd rather read it no so no, that no, no. I, don't, I don't no spoilers like, no spoilers See, um, not, everyone's gonna get hyped i have a possessed person yeah there we go yep everyone I, I should yep. really really like that character is the perfect yeah, that's guy. one of my favorite that is one of my favorite characters in this in the uh, book. for me the letter I don't know. I didn't. I didn't get a sense of believability that he was a serial killer. Like he read the letter. You guys tell us what you think. There were some disbeliefs in there. I think we talked about whether or not he was a serial killer in our group of four of us for what half an hour. (laughs) Yeah, he does. I mean, that went on for a while. To me, after studying criminology and the psychology of people who commit crimes and that's including serial killers who are rapists and all this other stuff right he doesn't fit a profile we did not know this information back then but we do now right so i kind of i see it if i didn't know anything then i'd be like oh yeah total serial killer he could 10 people in one night but at the same time it's like but he's never done it outside the law before this he's an anti-hero Disagree. No, mm-mm. I'm going to disagree with you. He killed people before because he sentenced he's straight them. Up a, he was a hanging he's judge. Straight up a, yeah, he was also he is a serial killer because it's serial killers is about profiling. Everyone thinks it's about profiling a certain type, but it's also profiling that they were guilty of something, and he knew this, right? He knew that they had somehow 
done all of these things. Okay. But the law wasn't there. So maybe he's both a serial killer who also is maybe like, um, you know, like the Punisher or Dexter, but he is, um, psychologically, I don't think he fits his actions. He's a serial killer psychologically. No. So because he's always working for half an hour. Here's what I'm here. Here's what I here's what I want to throw out to our community because I I I'm excited to see kind of after this episode drops, uh, and folks who have read this, I want to see what our Discord says about this. How do you feel yeah. about the letter? Is Wargrave and is he a serial killer? Does it matter? Um, I don't know if it matters if he's a serial killer or not. I don't think the label is everything or the end all be all here. But I honestly right. I think. I think the fact that he felt compelled to commit these crimes in this way and given his past, he's close. Whether you want to label him serial killer or not, he did kill a whole bunch of people. So I, I don't know. So I'm really and 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 I'm and I'm trying to wrap this up, obviously. But what I what I want to do is kind of um throw it back to the community, see what they say, and then come back to this on our next episode, you know? So yeah, everyone in Discord or shout out to us on Twitter or Instagram, um, and then yeah, also I mean, make sure you go to download to the website and um, download the um, the sheets that we're going to provide for you, so you can go over it, see what we came up with, and also what you would come up with, and let's have a discussion about it. Oh, and we'll also, have links to that stuff in the show notes too, because do we ha- do we need the uh, what was it the cats thing and the other stuff in the show notes as well in case people want to check that stuff out. Yeah, absolutely. Yep. All right. All right, guys. Debbie, I think I, I, I want to say you did a good job. What did you say, Nick? I expect to hear from you, Debbie. Oh, Debbie. Just go ahead and chime in. We'll see what happens. Let's do it. <laughs> All right. Anything like else for this, like, this episode, boys? I feel like it's going to be Debbie, Constance, and Jesse. All right. The bet's out there. Let's see if they chime in. Yeah. Um, so yeah, we'll, we'll come back with your guys's feedback, uh, on the next, on the next episode. That's not an interview. So, uh, let us know what you think, read the book and, uh, you know, engage with us, check out our Patreon and all that. And, uh, we'll see you all next time, I guess. huh? And just keep writing, just oh, keep going, just, just, just keep writing for God's sake. Do it. <laughs> and this has been just keep writing a podcast for writers by writers to keep you writing. Check out our website at justkeepwriting.org. You can find links to our social media and Discord channel in the show notes, as well as any other links mentioned during the show. If you want to support the show, the best way to do that is patreon.com slash just keep writing. Thanks for listening. Now just keep writing.